Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 21 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part story. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Jean and Frank Lockyer's only daughter was born on August 15, 1964. Sally was the spitting image of her mother. Her father Frank worked as a police chief inspector in the market town of Devizes. The family moved 25 miles south to Salisbury, a short distance from Stonehenge, and Frank Lockyer was soon promoted to the chief of police. Surrounded by the quintessentially English countryside, Sally attended the South Wiltshire Grammar School for Girls. She was highly athletic and enjoyed singing in the choir. An incredibly talented performer, Sally was recognised and offered a scholarship at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. She declined the opportunity to learn the arts, preferring to stay at home and focus on her studies. At least one teacher remarked that Sally's academic talents did not come naturally and she would need to work hard. Her dedication paid off when she earned top marks. After school, she set her sights on studying law, however was discouraged by a careers advisor who suggested that perhaps she should be more realistic due to the complexities of the law and her limited natural abilities. Disheartened, Sally decided to study industrial geography at Southampton University. As she did in school, Sally worked hard, exceeding her lecturer's expectations. Outside the classroom, she also enjoyed the nightlife and made friends easily. During her time studying, living away from home, 
Sally got the news that her mother Jean found a lump on one of her breasts. Unfortunately, she was diagnosed with cancer. Sally and her father rallied around Jean as she underwent treatment. Much to her family's relief, the operation was a success, and although progress was slow, the signs looked good that Jean would make a full recovery. Sally later received her grades and she obtained the highest score ever recorded at the University for Industrial Geography at the time, a 2-1. She missed a first-class degree by the narrowest of margins. Undecided on her next step, she got a job working as a management trainee at Lloyds Bank, a temporary career, while she decided what to do next. She passed her banking exams and moved to a rival company, Citibank, working in their corporate finance department where she dealt with a number of local law firms. One day at work, she took some documents to a solicitor. It was here she would meet her future husband, Stephen Clark, who was working as a junior solicitor at the time. Sally was usually confident, but around Steve she was tongue-tied and flustered. Eventually, they began dating. Their differences only seemed to bring them closer together. Sally later said of Steve, He is my best friend, my innermost mate. I trust him with my soul. The couple were engaged during September of 1988 and couldn't be happier but it wouldn't be long before the bubble burst. The cancer which Sally's mother had fought so hard against was back, and this time her prognosis did not look good. The family spent the Christmas of 1988 together, and Sally would often speak with her mother about how happy she was with Steve. After one of those heart-to-hearts in February 1989, Jean Lockyer would take her final breath. Sally's father Frank was a man that had worked hard his whole life, but his wife did most things for him, and without her by his side, he found domestic life difficult. Jean had been the one that had made their house a home. Steve and Sally were married in July 1990 at St Thomas Church in Salisbury. This was one of the happiest days of Sally's life. She only wished her mother was there to see it. As her relationship with Steve was going from strength to strength, Sally was becoming dissatisfied with her position at Citibank. Although Sally was in her mid-twenties and was well on her way to a subsidised mortgage, company car and a substantial pay rise, she still couldn't shake the feeling that she should have pursued a law degree. Steve was only too happy to help his wife, and Sally was determined. She was willing to give up her job in the City of London and the salary of £30,000, which is about £65,000 in today's money. Sally was accepted onto a law course at the City of London University and for two years she studied hard. When the final exam results were published, Sally recalled the meeting she had had with her careers advisor, telling her that she shouldn't focus on law, telling her she wasn't bright enough. When Sally Clark received the news that she had passed, she was elated. More good news came when her father Frank met Rosemary Squires. The two found solace in each other's company, so decided to get married. Sally was pleased for her father, and Frank and Rosemary tied the knot in April 1991.
Steve Clarke had become a partner at a large solicitors in Manchester called Adelshaws. At the same time, Sally had found work as an assistant solicitor at another city law firm in their corporate finance department. In 1993, after an acquisition, the two firms ended up becoming one, so now the couple were working for the same solicitors. Both brought in a considerable income which afforded them the chance to purchase Hope Cottage in Wilmslow, Cheshire. The white building was the home they'd always wanted, except for an incredibly stiff front door that was almost impossible to open. Sally and Steve watched their friends become parents, although they both felt they wanted to have a significant nest egg before trying for a family. Sally was highly ambitious in her role as a solicitor, and was never overly maternal, but felt her biological clock was ticking. In January 1996, the couple were blessed with wonderful news. Sally was pregnant. She was in shock, but she couldn't be happier. Later on in the pregnancy, they found out they were having a boy. They had picked a name for their son before he arrived. They chose Christopher Joshua Clark. He was born in the early hours of September 22, 1996. Three days later, the newborn was allowed to come home with his parents. The only occupants of the household who were unhappy to see Christopher arrive at Hope Cottage were the family cats Tabitha and Treacle. Sally described her son in one word, beautiful. He rarely cried and seemed content in his Moses basket. He seldom stayed in his freshly painted yellow and blue nursery. His parents felt safe knowing their son was nearby so would often keep him in his basket in their bedroom. They spent as much time with the newborn as they could. Christmas was fast approaching, so the couple visited a photographer to have their first family photos taken. They arranged Christopher's christening for the new year and sent out invites to 40 of their closest friends and family. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, 
all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. During the start of December, Sally and Steve took Christopher on his first proper family outing, a trip to London. They would be staying at the Strand Palace Hotel in the heart of London's West End. While Sally was out shopping with her friends, Steve was working in the hotel room and looking after Christopher. As he sorted through some paperwork, Steve glanced over to his son and noticed that Christopher had suddenly started bleeding from both nostrils. The doctor was called urgently and after Christopher was examined, his parents were told that it was nothing to worry about. He had been in good health the day before. While Sally and Steve tried to put the day's events to the back of their minds, that was easier said than done. As the weeks passed, Sally cherished the time she shared at home with her new son, so was looking to go back to work on a part-time basis. Unfortunately, as she had only been qualified for such a short period, she couldn't reduce her working hours, so after speaking with Steve the two decided they would employ a childminder. Sally had worked hard to get her qualifications, so it wasn't something she wanted to give up. After the couple returned from London, Sally went to a postnatal appointment. She told her doctor that Christopher had had a heavy nosebleed. She also mentioned that her son had a runny nose, which he couldn't seem to shake off. The doctor didn't examine Christopher and explained that it was nothing to worry about. Sally was instructed that it could be cleared up quickly with some light steam and a cotton bud. Friday, December 13th, 1996. A day that began like any other. Sally headed out with Christopher to post a Christmas gift and then went to a bakery to decide on the icing for Christopher's christening cake. They returned to an empty Hope Cottage. Steve was at a Christmas party. Socialising didn't come easily to him, but his wife had persuaded him to go. The two spoke on the phone, 
Then Sally got in the bath. Christopher was close by in the bathroom. Once Sally dried herself off, she picked up Christopher and put him in his Moses basket on the bedroom floor near the wardrobe. Sally turned on the TV and headed downstairs to make a hot drink. As the kettle boiled, Sally did the washing up before returning to the bedroom. She was no more than 10 minutes. When she returned to the bedroom shortly after 9.30pm, Sally placed her cup of tea on the bedside table. As she looked down at the Moses basket, expecting to see her son smiling back at her, she noticed that Christopher was a dusty grey colour and wasn't breathing. Sally didn't know what to do. In a state of panic and unable to remember any of the resuscitation training she had done, Sally picked up her son, who felt limp. She ran downstairs and dialed 999. The emergency services rushed to Christopher's aid. They approached the property and tried both the front and back doors, but they wouldn't open. One of the paramedics could hear Sally screaming inside. The front door was nearly impossible to open and the back door had been locked from the inside by Sally before she went to bed. Sally couldn't remember where she'd put the key. She screamed that her neighbours had a spare. Paramedics obtained a key from next door and when they finally accessed the property, they tried their best to resuscitate the infant on the kitchen table. He was pale, cold to the touch and had no pulse. Christopher was rushed to the accident and emergency room at Macclesfield Hospital. Throughout the entire journey, Sally was hysterically screaming at the paramedics, please don't let my baby die. Once at the hospital, Sally was taken into a side room as the nurses and doctors did their best to resuscitate her son. She told a nurse that her husband would blame her and he wouldn't love her anymore. Around 10pm, Steve Clark was contacted at a restaurant where his Christmas party was being held. He didn't recognise the voice on the other end of the line. A nurse told him to get to Macclesfield Hospital as quickly as possible as his wife needed him. He arrived around 10 past 11 and a doctor asked to speak to him in private. He was told his son had been pronounced dead at 10.40pm. Christopher Clark was 11 weeks old. In between her shouts of why me, all Sally could think about was a Christmas present she had labelled in Hope Cottage. It read, to Daddy, with love from Christopher. Early the next morning they were awoken by two police officers who wanted to know more about the previous evening. Distraught, Sally recounted the series of events that led to the loss of her son. The police officers took away the Moses basket and a bouncy chair that belonged to Christopher. As Christmas Day approached, Sally and Steve received word from the coroner that Christopher had died due to a lower respiratory tract infection. A few bruises were found on his body, along with a tear in his frenulum, which is part of the upper lip, although this was believed to have been caused when attempts were made to resuscitate him. A small amount of blood was found in his lungs, but was deemed inconsequential at the time. The only grain of comfort Steve and Sally Clark were given was their son would have likely died in his sleep. A funeral took place on December 22, 1996 at St Anne's Church in Wilmslow. Only Steve, 
Sally and the vicar witnessed Christopher's small coffin as it made its way behind the curtain. At the start of 1997, Sally and Steve decided to travel abroad to reflect on what had happened. They spoke about what they were going to do next. When they returned, they both threw themselves back into their work. 12 to 14 hour days weren't unusual, but they both felt something was missing. The pair decided that perhaps trying for another baby might help ease their pain. Steve would later say the couple saw this as part of the healing process to get over the loss of their first son. It didn't take them long to conceive, and in May 1997, Sally discovered she was pregnant. Steve had been to bereavement counselling, but Sally struggled with the idea of telling a stranger how she felt. Instead, she turned to alcohol. At first she drank in secret at home, and then this progressed to drinking at work. The office staff soon realised and Sally was sent on early maternity leave. She tried to hide her drinking problem from her husband under the belief that he hadn't noticed. When he finally confronted Sally about it, she was relieved. They both agreed that Sally should see a specialist. After their appointment, it was recommended that Sally talk regularly with a counsellor. The specialist didn't see her alcohol dependence as something that couldn't be overcome. Some testing was carried out to ensure the baby was healthy and all the results were positive. Sally and Steve decided they would use the same hospital and the same consultants as before as they would be aware of the couple's past. The happy parents were informed of the sex of the baby. It was going to be a boy. While playing badminton in October 1997, Steve tore his Achilles tendon. He was told his leg would need to be covered in plaster for the next few months. Not ideal as his son was due to be born in December. At the end of November, the couple arrived at hospital for a routine checkup. Without realising it, Sally was in the early stages of labour. Harry Richard Clark was born on November 29, 1997. He was three weeks premature and weighed just six pounds. Before they prepared to leave the hospital, Sally and Steve were reminded how to perform the resuscitation procedure. They were told they must be forceful. A broken rib was better than a dead baby. Steve practiced on a dummy, but Sally couldn't bring herself to do it as it brought back too many memories. When they got home, the couple and the hospital did everything they could to monitor Harry's health. He was placed on the Care of Next Infant program, which was designed to support parents that had previously lost a child due to cot death. Electrodes were attached to Harry's abdomen. The machine, an apnea alarm, could detect abnormalities in his breathing. Harry slept next to his parents' bed every night. He was kept at arm's length from anyone that showed even the slightest sign of a cold, and his weight was regularly monitored. Christopher seldom ever cried but Harry seemed to be far more vocal, keeping his parents up most evenings. The couple would go on to employ Leslie Kerrigan, a nanny who helped around the home five days a week. All she ever saw were two loving, affectionate parents. As Harry turned seven weeks old, his apnea alarm was going off continually. He seemed fine and Sally and Steve were told by experts that it was likely a technical fault. 
Around this time, Harry started to develop a cold. This progressively got worse, so his parents called out an emergency doctor. The doctor carried out an examination and had a few stern words for both parents, as it was only a cold. This is certainly not an emergency, he said. The couple explained to the doctor that they had lost a son to cot death only a year before. He prescribed Harry nasal drops and was full of apologies. Christmas 1997 was nothing like the previous year. Sat in front of the fire, Sally, Steve, Harry and the two cats, Tabitha and Treacle, enjoyed Christmas together. The new year passed and Steve returned to work. As a partner, he was expected to attend corporate gatherings and networking events. Often not returning home till late, he missed his family. He had been asked to stay overnight in Glasgow for work in the coming weeks. He told Sally if she was uncomfortable, he was happy to stay at home. Sally said it was fine and she would be okay on her own. Monday, January 26th, 1998. Sally looked after Harry and Steve went to work. As Steve's leg had still not healed from his badminton injury, he was journeying to the office by taxi, still on his crutches. Sally had planned a dinner party with neighbours, so left to go to the butcher's, a grocer's, a delicatessen, and then purchase some bottles of wine. After Sally returned home, Elizabeth McDougall, a health visitor, arrived at 3.45pm with a new apnea alarm for Harry. At 10 to 4, Sally took her son to Wilmslow Health Centre, where he received his immunisation jabs. Sally saw her doctor for a postnatal checkup, and she seemed in a cheerful mood. Harry wasn't examined. By the time Sally got home, around 5.30pm, Harry was asleep and was not awoken as Sally pushed the pram through the doorway of Hope Cottage. Steve later arrived home from work. That evening the television was on and Sally was breastfeeding Harry in the bedroom. He seemed uninterested. Sally passed Harry to his father who pulled some silly faces to amuse his son. Steve put Harry in his bouncing chair and headed downstairs to make Harry a bottle instead. He was gone for only a few minutes. While Steve was downstairs, Sally looked at her son and immediately noticed something was wrong. Harry looked pale. Sally picked him up and he felt limp. She was paralysed. All she could do was scream for her husband who rushed up the stairs. Steve attempted to gently resuscitate his son on the bed but remembered that he must push harder on a hard surface. As he tried to save his son's life, Sally ran downstairs and dialed 999. The call was made at 9.27pm. The operator asked to speak to Steve as he was the one resuscitating Harry. Sally shouted to Steve to pick up the bedroom phone, but in her panic, she accidentally hung up. The operator called back and Steve was told what to do throughout the next nine minutes. He pumped his son's chest and blew air into his lungs. Nothing was working. Sally found the keys to the back door and headed to the garden gate. Paramedics arrived at 9.36pm and they greeted Sally who was hysterical. They rushed upstairs and took over from Steve, making further attempts to resuscitate Harry. 
the paramedics didn't notice any signs of outward trauma to the infant. Three minutes later, paramedics rushed Harry to Macclesfield Hospital along with Sally who was extremely distressed. She told them that this was the second time this had happened. As Steve wasn't as mobile, he followed them in a taxi. When they arrived, Sally was sent to the same waiting room as before. She screamed at the nurse who took her to a different waiting area. After Steve arrived, the couple were waiting, speechless. A nurse broke the silence and told them they should say goodbye to their son. Harry Clark passed away at 10.41pm on January 26th, 1998. He was just eight weeks old. Sully and Steve Clark asked for a specialist paediatric pathologist to carry out the post-mortem as they wanted to know why the second of their children had also died unexpectedly. Dr. Alan Williams, the general pathologist at Macclesfield Hospital, carried out the procedure. He examined Harry's body for signs of bruising. Dr. Williams had carried out the post-mortem on Sally and Steve's first son, Christopher. In complete shock at their loss, Sally and Steve made their way home in a taxi. They had been back at Hope Cottage barely 20 minutes when they received a knock at the door. The doctor had been sent by the hospital, who said there had been a report of a sick baby at the address. Sally's grief was uncontrollable. As before, two police officers arrived at Hope Cottage. They took photos of the bedroom and were sympathetic to the couple's loss. Their visit was expected and Sally and Steve were not alarmed. They answered every question posed to them as honestly as they were able. Sally and Steve thought this would be the last time a police officer would darken their door. The coroner's office eventually called and Sally was gently asked about the final days of Harry's life. Sally explained that Harry had a blocked nose and was given nasal drops that were prescribed by an emergency doctor. She was told as soon as the post-mortem was completed they would be able to confirm what had happened. Each day Sally and Steve called the coroner's office asking for news. Each time they were told another test would be needed. As days turned to weeks, the couple were frustrated with the delays but were told that it was completely routine. On the morning of February 23rd, 1998, Steve Clark was relaxing in the bath. Dressed in just her dressing gown, his wife was downstairs in the kitchen making some breakfast. Through a window, Sally saw two cars pull up outside the property. Watching as the five figures approached, she knocked on the window glass. As the front door was difficult to open, she directed them round to the back door. Sally was greeted by five police officials. Detective Inspector John Gardner introduced himself. He asked Sally if her husband was home. Sally said he was and shouted up to Steve that the police were here. Steve got out of the bath and began to dry himself off. Sally offered the officers a cup of tea or coffee, but they refused her gesture. Steve entered the kitchen as the detective inspector explained that their son did not die of natural causes. There were signs of abuse. Harry Clark was unlawfully killed. In disbelief, Steve told them they had to be joking. 
both Sally and Stephen Clark were arrested in connection with the murder of their second son, Harry. The couple were taken to separate bedrooms so they could put on some clothes. Sally told the officers, you are making a terrible mistake. She pleaded with them to at least let her travel in the same car as her husband. A request was granted as long as the couple didn't speak to one another. In silence, Sally and Steve held hands throughout the entire journey. When they arrived at the station, they were separated. Their pockets were emptied, their shoelaces and belts were removed. Sally was interviewed first. She declined the offer for a lawyer as she just wanted to know why her babies died and having an open conversation with police officers might help achieve that. The officers were relaxed and put Sally at ease. She was asked about why she wanted a family. She explained that she wasn't sure at first, wanting to build her career as a lawyer. However, she knew her biological clock was ticking. She told the officers that after Christopher was born, her entire outlook changed. The more Sally spoke, the more honest she was. She told them that she felt fat when she was pregnant and wasn't comfortable. She said occasionally she missed her friends and after Steve had injured himself playing badminton, it was hard looking after both him and a baby. She told the officers that Christopher was a quiet baby. Harry was more demanding. Sally laughed and smiled as she recalled the sleepless nights. She jokingly remarked, the little bugger. Both officers took note of her comment. Sally was then asked about some injuries that were found during Harry's post-mortem. She couldn't explain how he got them. After the interview was finished, Sally was taken to a police cell. As police searched through Hope Cottage, Steve Clark was interviewed. Three hours later, the police returned to Sally's cell and she was taken to be interviewed again. They asked about the Care of Next Infant program through which Harry was being monitored. They also asked about Sally's alcohol problems. She told them everything. Around 4.30pm that day, the couple were released on bail. They were expected to report to the police station in two months' time. A month earlier, on January 27, 1998, a day after Harry's death, Dr. Alan Williams carried out the autopsy. Dr. Williams identified signs that Harry was shaken. He found hemorrhages in Harry's retinas and swelling in his spinal cord. One of his ribs had been fractured and another dislocated. Under the belief that Harry was murdered, he informed both Detective Inspector John Gardner and Professor Michael Green, a forensic pathologist and professor of forensic medicine at Sheffield University. He told them both that due to the condition of Harry's body, he believed the infant was shaken to death. Further testing was completed by Macclesfield Hospital, which identified the presence of a bacteria, Staphylococcus aureus. Non-sterile conditions such as morgues are a breeding ground for this bacteria, though if contracted when alive, it could be fatal. The results of this test, a microbiology report, did not grace a courtroom until four years later. Now aware they should retain the services of a criminal solicitor, 
Steve Clark was put in touch with Mike Mackey of criminal defence solicitors Burton Copeland. During a meeting, he asked Steve and Sally what they had told police. Sally replied, Everything. The solicitor told them not to have any more conversations about what had happened unless he was there. Sally and Steve decided not to tell their friends or family. They returned home and awaited a call from Mike Mackey to tell them the nightmare was over. Finally, the telephone rang. It was Mike Mackey. Steve was told that he would no longer need to report to Wilmslow Police Station. He had been cleared of murder. Steve heard a deep breath before the solicitor told him that his wife alone would likely be standing trial for the murder of both their sons. Sally was shocked by the news, but believed that she had nothing to fear. She hadn't done anything wrong. After a visit to the police station, Sally was released on bail, but had to reside at Hope Cottage. She was told she must report to the police station three times a week, and had to surrender her passport. The couple still couldn't bear to tell anyone. Sally was questioned a number of times by police, but declined to answer any questions on the advice of her solicitor. Shortly after Sally was released on bail, she found out she was pregnant. This certainly wasn't something the couple had planned. They told their solicitor Mike Mackey about the news, but he was far from happy. He was worried that could spur the Crown Prosecution Service into action. The CPS might believe Sally got pregnant on purpose. Mike Mackey also believed that the CPS might want to take their baby into custody. Sally and Steve got in touch with a family law solicitor who arranged an appointment with the local authority, the Child Protection Unit and Social Services. The couple were assigned a social worker who interviewed them both at length. Given the circumstances, it was agreed that once the baby was born, Sally and Steve could remain with their new child in the special baby care unit at the hospital for 10 days, but they were not allowed to be alone with the infant. The baby would then have to stay with a foster family. Steve and Sally would be allowed to see their child for two hours a day. On November 30th, 1998, Sally gave birth to her third son. He was taken into a special baby care unit and Sally and Steve were no longer allowed unsupervised contact with him. He spent 10 days at the hospital before being placed into foster care. Sally and Steve spent the Christmas period of 1998 between Hope Cottage and their baby's foster parents. In the new year, the couple knew they would need money to mount an adequate defence, and a lot of it. Steve went to the bank for a loan. This would be for several hundred thousand pounds. At the end of July 1999, Sally again reported to Wilmslow Police Station she had been doing since the previous year. This time, she was charged with murdering both Christopher and Harry Clark. The Crown Prosecution Service was serious, and there was no way the charges were going to be dismissed. A committal hearing in Macclesfield Magistrates Court took place to prove if there was enough evidence to go to trial. On their way to the hearing, Steve and Sally were accosted by a photographer. Their attempts to keep the hearing quiet were well and truly over. It was unlikely that the charge for Harry's death would be dropped, but John Kelsey Fry, acting as junior counsel for Sally Clark, 
informed her and Steve that the charge for Christopher's death would almost certainly be dismissed, making the Crown's case a hard one to prove. Julian Bevan QC was the leading barrister and would also be representing Sally in court if the case went to trial. Dr. Alan Williams, who carried out the post-mortems, took to the stand. He confirmed that when he examined Christopher's body, it showed no external signs that pointed to a cause of death. He detailed the split to Christopher's upper lip, a small number of fingertip bruises, and a small amount of blood in his lungs. At the time, Dr. Alan Williams believed that the split in Christopher's lip and the bruises were caused during the resuscitation attempts. He then went on to detail his findings when carrying out a post-mortem on Harry. One of Harry's ribs was fractured and another dislocated. There was swelling in his spinal cord. There were also retinal hemorrhages in his eyes. Dr. Williams said there was no natural cause for these injuries. He believed that Harry had died after being violently shaken. After he re-examined his findings on Christopher, he now believed that the baby boy died after being smothered. He told the hearing that had Harry not passed away, he would not have reviewed the details on Christopher's death. Dr. Williams was asked how much blood in a child's lungs would be significant, specifically the percentage of red blood cells. After trying to avoid answering the question, he said less than 10% would not be significant. Professor Michael Green, a former home office pathologist who completed the test, scored this at only 5%. The professor took to the stand and confirmed that 5% was low and airway obstruction couldn't be considered, contradicting Dr. Williams's belief that Christopher was smothered. Professor Green then explained he could not find any natural reason why Harry Clark would have retinal hemorrhages. He provided the cause of death for both Christopher and Harry as unascertained. In other words, he could not confirm how either child died. After Professor Green and Dr. Alan Williams had given evidence, Professor Sir Roy Meadow addressed the hearing on behalf of the Crown Prosecution Service. An expert on child abuse who had been knighted in 1998 for services to child health, he had graced the cause numerous times providing counsel and testimony on countless baby murder cases. Professor Sir Roy Meadow had written a book called The ABC of Child Abuse, in which he had surmised in a single family, one sudden infant death is a tragedy, two is suspicious, and three is murder until proven otherwise. He addressed the hearing and spoke of a research paper he had completed, which featured 81 cases that were initially claimed to be cot death, when in fact 50 were proved to be murder. He was certain Christopher had died from being smothered. The defence team of John Kelsey Fry QC and criminal solicitor Mike Mackey were confident that the charge for Christopher's death would be dropped. They felt that the evidence from the prosecution lacked any credibility. Dr. Alan Williams and Professor Michael Green the prosecution's own expert witnesses could not agree on how Christopher died. However, as both experts agreed that Harry was shaken, this would be more difficult to dismiss, especially due to the hemorrhages found in his retinas. After a two-day committal hearing, the magistrate decided that Sally Clark would be standing trial for murdering her sons, Christopher and Harry. 
a trial was set for October 11, 1999. Prior to the trial on August 4th, a meeting took place between Dr. Alan Williams, who gave evidence at the committal hearing, a paediatric pathologist, Professor Berry, who would be giving evidence on behalf of Sally Clark, and an impartial consultant paediatrician for the family division. Together, they would further examine the evidence in which Dr. Alan Williams identified there were hemorrhages in Harry's retinas. The three men viewed the slides under a microscope. They realised that Dr. Alan Williams had made a huge mistake. There were not any hemorrhages in Harry's retinas. This is the end of episode 21. To hear more on the trial, the outcome and the fallout of the case, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. From January 1st, 1976 through the end of March, 1977, the Metro Detroit area was the site of nine child murders. Three of those cases are resolved, but the other six cases remain open, with most of these deaths attributed to the as-yet-unidentified Oakland County child killer. Don't Talk to Strangers is a long-form podcast focused on this series of unresolved child murders. Join us as we explore the stories of these young victims, the impact on their families and the community, and what happened to the investigation into these crimes. Subscribe to Don't Talk to Strangers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.